Welcome to the Gate Crashers Podcast, where we storm the gates of publishing and dare to talk about the realities of the industry. I'm your Ivory Tower representative, Amanda Liedeke, literary agent and vice president at McGregor and Liedeke. And I'm your self-publishing insider, Therese Crow, novelist and speaker. We are continuing our series on agents uncensored we asked literary agents what are the things that they would love to tell authors and publishers but they just don't because it would be impolite or uh <laughs> get them in career trouble. ending <laughs> career ending. <laughs> uh, so we have another round of submissions i reached out to some folks i know and we have um we have some insights into what goes through the mind of agents who represent fiction authors. So this is fiction-specific for the most part. I like this because in my head, I associate nonfiction writers as being a little more down-to-earth. Yeah. And fiction writers are more like the zany sibling, you know? Yeah, they are. They're more of the like... They're more likely to treat it as like an art form, you know, you know, so that's, that's, I think where the zany can can sometimes come in and they're more excitable, you know, nonfiction authors, you're right. They're very, tend to be very practical numbers driven, usually not all the time. Of course, sometimes you get, you definitely get your artists on that end of the the spectrum too. But for fiction, it's very hobby people who love books and Yeah. Yeah. So we're just going to dive right in. The first thing that someone said, I wish authors would read that they would know what was out there so that their comp titles aren't decades old, that they would recognize that the Nightingale isn't the only book. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the Nightingale is. I'm obviously I don't work with much fiction. Apparently it's too old. It's so apparently it's old. Um but yes, I mean this is this is an issue for nonfiction as well, where everyone mm-hmm. wants to compare their title to seven of seven habits of highly effective people or uh, you know, something by an, an iconic book, and you're like, right. Oh, my book is like this. And that's not helpful or realistic. Right. right. And I think it's not just like, you know, as far as selling or pitching your book to the publisher that this is frustrating, but if you're talking about a title that was done in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties, it's not helpful from a marketing side either. Yeah. Like if you know your genre, then your agent and your publisher will say, okay, well, if it is similar to these two, three series that were all published in the last five years, we can take a look at how did this publisher market it? What did they do to help push the launch of the book? And, you know, if it's truly similar, if it's really the same readership, hopefully that can give them some guidance on how to release yours to be successful. But if all you got is, you know, 50, 40 year old titles, that's, that's not going to work anymore. Publishers use the comp title list for things that like, I think the average author just wouldn't even expect. So just like the example you gave, like, how do we, how do we cast the vision for marketing for this book? Or how does the marketing team feel about this book based on these comp titles? But they also use the comp titles 
they will go in and see, well, how many copies of that book sold? And so that's why you want to give them like a realistic, you want to give them a realist, a realistic snapshot of books that are like yours that are in the marketplace in the past couple of years. And you don't want to go with anything that was a bestseller because that's just a fluke and we can't necessarily replicate that. And of course, right. you don't want to go with anything that was like a complete bust because that is just shooting yourself in the foot. So you right. want to find that's that. That's not like, what we're aiming for either. <laughs> right. So you want to find that middle ground, those books that have maybe 400 reviews on Amazon that have been seemingly in the middle of the pack uh, because you they're going to go in and they're going to see, okay, how many copies sold? Oh, 15,000. Well, maybe we can, maybe this is a viable book idea or, you know, whatever, instead of, oh, this book has been 50 years old and it's 2 million copies in print. And what are we right. going to do with this information? Right. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the marketing thing, because there was a book I was working on recently that we were trying to figure out you know, what kind of publicity and we, we wanted to get big publicity for it because it was a big name author. And I ended up pulling a comp title from a book that was successful and the uh, marketing team was able to just basically download the um, publicity list that had been used for that book. Right. They like went on this, I can't remember the name of it. Um, I'm not even going to try to say it. They went on this website that like shows the publicity hit list for different book projects nice. and they basically copied and pasted and like okay well we're gonna hit out hit up all of these to replicate what had been done for this other book so you're absolutely right like those comp titles it's good to be yeah realistic the next one stop trying to connect the past and present in a split time narrative with someone's grandmother's locket or diary or love letters. <laughs> Split time books. I do not like them at all. So I fully agree with the, with the agent on this one. So it's overdone. And this agent does not want to see it anymore. They are just, yeah, they've had it. They've no had more. it. No more. I didn't hear anything about grandpa's gun collection or war medals though. So See, is that still on the table? That might be a little bit, you know, more doable than the classic, like, you get an old writing desk and you pop open a drawer and then, oh, there's a secret compartment and look at these love letters and then you're suddenly in a split time. Yeah, that yeah. is, I would agree. I see that when I used to rep represent fiction, I would see that a lot with those specific things, the diary, the love letters, the locket, those right. specific items were the catalyst for the time loopiness right i like the gun collection idea see now i'm sitting here thinking like where's the book about grandma who escaped germany in the 1940s but she has a special like stabby stabby knife where she used to lure the nazi soldiers into the forest like where's my where's my book about that i want that one right things that are just really yeah out there yeah and that's i mean it goes back to pushing yourself as a novelist to think of how to tell the same story in a fresh way all right the next one this agent said i wish white authors would stop trying to convince themselves that diversity means their own work including a bipoc character 
So I think there needs to be more nuance with that one. Um, we could actually do a whole episode on this, but it would veer more into the craft department. Um, if you are a white author, there is nothing wrong with your story having BIPOC characters. There's nothing wrong with your story having LGBTQ characters. Um, the issue comes in when these characters are there simply to be a token. And um, another issue, and we don't see this one nearly as much anymore because these books will be rightfully burned to the ground, but you've had white authors in the past who have written their book from the perspective of a character who has been marginalized in society or that we would consider marginalized in society, whether that be their skin color, their religion, their sexual orientation, those kinds of things. And that feels really gross because it's not authentic. It's just what a white person considers that person's struggle to be. And so it becomes a story about, it becomes a story that's only about struggle. And it's not even the struggle that that author has actually had to deal with. And then when you have these marginalized characters and you make them brown or gay or another people group for the sake of just having somebody there, that that doesn't work yeah. either. You know, yeah. you can't, and we've, if you're in these circles and if these are conversations that matter to you, then you're probably already familiar with this, but there are a lot of tropes surrounding each of these individual groups um, that you really need to be aware of and mm-hmm. stay away from. Like the black best friend who only exists in the story to serve the main character has no goals or story of their own or the magical black person, like the uh, wise, the wise. Like the, uh, yeah. Is it the green mile I where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So like that kind of thing. You know, in a novel I was working on in college, I had the black best friend trope. Right. I totally had that. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the time, like my mindset was, I want all kinds of people to be in my books, you know? So coming at it from good intentions. Right. But she was totally just the wise, right. steady best friend. Right. Who was the roommate, you know? Yeah. And it just kind of fit into that box that white writers have put black characters in, mm-hmm. you know? And it, yep. yeah, I totally yeah. was there. And and I, I think that's good to mention that even though your intentions were good, yeah, that doesn't mean that the execution was good right. or appropriate or something that should have made it to the publishing stage. You know, right? right. I think too your point about um, the whole pushback on white authors writing books that have a main perspective of a BIPOC character and the trouble with that. A really so for any of our listeners who might be like on the fence of like, well, I can write whatever I want, blah, blah, blah. A really compelling argument that, I heard, that I've heard about that is, yes, technically you can write whatever you want, but those stories, for a story like that to be picked up and published, you are taking the spot mm-hmm. of an author of color who could mm-hmm. write that story so much better 
and more authentically. Yeah. So you are just filling a spot. You're taking a spot that really ought to belong to someone else because so many of those people groups have been historically passed over by publishers because of the way they looked or the way that they lived their lives. Yeah. And so to have society finally reaching a point where we say, oh, that's, that's wrong. We need to correct this. Yeah. If the problem hadn't been there in the first place, if there hadn't been this lack of inclusion, this lack of equal opportunity, then we wouldn't be in a situation now where we say, but we have to place a higher value here because we've been bad about it in the past. Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of people who have that perspective of, no, I can, I can write whatever I want or who get really defensive about it and start saying like reverse racism or whatever. Right. It's like, you're forgetting the first half where these people were intentionally left out. Right. They were told no because of these reasons. So like, and you can't tell me that your only book idea includes a BIPOC main character. Like that's also where I land. Like we all know writers have a thousand different book ideas. Choose one of your other ideas. This kind of whole philosophy is essentially own voices. And we could do a whole episode on own voices because I've got a lot to say about that. It is an overwhelmingly positive meaning movement and it does help create more space for people of color, indigenous people, people who are part of the alphabet mafia. Um, It does give them more space to tell their stories the way they want to tell them. But in all fairness, there is a double edge to this sword where, and especially publishers are guilty of this. um, It ends up being that if you are a person who falls into a marginalized people group, you are expected on some level to tell a marginalized story yes and not just not just the story you want to write but they have to be discriminated against they have to be Mm -hmm. given a disadvantage they have to be seen as lesser than than their white counterparts you know and so while the intention is let's make more space for people who haven't had these opportunities because we kept them from them it's now turning into well, let's fetishize it. And you can only write stories that include these themes that we did to you. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's so there's no perfect. If there is a perfect answer here, we haven't figured it out yet. Because obviously we want books that have a diverse cast of characters. Like that is just the way of the future. That's how it should be. Mm -hmm. We want authors to be able to comfortably write other people with from different walks of life but we need to leave that room at the table for those voices to be telling those stories first and foremost Mm -hmm. and publishers need to realize that they are not defined by their struggle either like that is obviously a huge part of their story but that doesn't mean that everything that they produce not all fruits need to come from that branch thank you for joining us for this episode of the gate crashers podcast If you found value in this episode or in any of the episodes we've done, you can drop a tip in our tip jar. Tips help to offset the cost of the podcast and they'll also help us grow bigger and better. You can send a tip via PayPal. Simply use our link, paypal.me slash gatecrashers. That's paypal.me, M-E, slash gatecrashers. Or log into PayPal and search us using our username, which is at gatecrashers. 
And be sure to be here next week for a brand new episode. 